everyone, and welcome to the Australia Herpticulture Podcast. I'm your host, Jason. And I'm your co-host, Luke. How you going, mate? Yeah, good, good. Very busy. Very busy, Sorry. very sore. That's it. Nice big move happening. Yeah, yeah. So probably about two-thirds of the animals or so are at the new place and spent my last night there camping out in the lounge room, um, or in the in the herp room, rather, just to stay up there and feed some lizards last night and this morning. So, yep. yeah. Good fun. Yeah. Sounds good. I saw the picture. It looked pretty, looked pretty good. So yeah, it was cozy until the lights came on this morning at seven a.m. and woke me up pretty brutally. But you know, that's all right. That's all good. <laughs> oh, why don't we get straight into it, eh? What do you reckon? Yeah, we'll talk about all that kind of stuff next week or something like that. Yep. Yep. Sounds good. Anyhow, I'll let you introduce the host, Luke. You can do the honors tonight, mate. We're the hosts. We're not introducing I mean... hosts. <laughs> the guest. <laughs> the guest. Off all right, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Off to a flying start. Yeah. So, guys, uh, we're going to be introducing Ross McGibbon from Ross McGibbon's Reptile Photography or Photography in general. If I've gotten that right, mate. Yeah, uh, I call myself Ross, Ross McGibbon Reptile Photography on Facebook, but Instagram's Ross McGibbon Photography. Yeah, so guys, if you haven't been familiar with Ross's work, you need to go and check him out both on Facebook and Instagram. And uh, he's also got a, a brilliant website up there as well with a lot of images and things that you can purchase off Ross. Um, but yeah, mate, welcome to the show. We're so happy to have you on board. We're absolutely ecstatic to get you across here because we're both massive fans of your work. And I know Definitely. Jason's a bit of a photography nerd himself and wants to learn a little more. So he was pretty stoked when I told him that we had you on board here. So yeah, welcome to the show, mate. Thanks for having me, fellas. I, I thought I was getting promoted before when you said I was going to be a, a host. <laughs> I, might just, I might just resign, mate. <laughs> I, was like, I was like, cool, who are we interviewing? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, interviewing uh, Jason instead. Yeah. Oh, that was a doozy. That was a doozy. So, so Jason, how did you get into photography? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, it's gold. Oh, now I'm not going to leave that one down. <laughs> That's all right. We'll leave that in there. We'll leave that in there. That's a good laugh. Yep. So, so, well, let's start interviewing Ross instead of Jason because yeah, I think that's what we're here to actually listen to. We've talked enough on here to, to for everyone to kind of understand who we are and, and whatnot. So, um, Ross? We might throw that question right back at you. <laughs> so, what got you into photography <laughs> well, and reptiles? Well, I guess I should start from the beginning. Uh, I'll just yep, give a little brief rundown of that. Um, like most people that are into reptiles, it all started somewhere and mostly when you're a kid. And for me, it was um, dinosaurs. That, yep. that was that was my thing as a as a kid. I was obsessed with them up till you know probably age six or seven. Um, you know, saw Jurassic Park about a thousand times in the cinemas and. Um, that kept me busy for a whole like, you know, holidays season. Uh, And um, yeah, once I sort of started to learn uh, about reptiles in the natural world, I was just like, oh, how cool is this? You know, you've got these basically miniature dinosaurs running around and and you can actually see them and, and, you know, get hands on with some of them. So that was just me as a young kid running around the bush. Um, Not much has changed actually, but (laughs) Uh, yeah running around the bush catching everything I could find I just had like a really um, inquisitive mind for the natural world and uh, my bedroom was full of about seven bearded dragons and (laughs) a fish tank full of green tree frogs and um, snakes were pretty off limits uh, you know at that at that time but you know lizards and frogs I was all about it as a kid and 
I still remember to this day, you know, um, mum decided to try getting a cleaner and this, um, you know, sort of Spanish cleaner lady um, tried to clean my room one day and opened my top drawer and and there was a big fully grown male bearded dragon in the top drawer. (laughs) 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 And, uh, you know, so she never cleaned my room again. (laughs) That's awesome. That's absolutely awesome. So where where did you kind of go from there? Where did you kind of keep the, the passion going from there? Were that were they the only animals you actually kept at home when you were younger? Uh, no. So when I was sixteen, I got my first carpet python. Yep. Uh, yep. I had that for about eleven years, and it unfortunately passed away from a a random spinal infection. It got a infection that somehow got into its spine. Yeah, right. um, uh, so that was that was my first pet snake, and uh, her name was Chase. Uh, originally thought it was actually a, a male and, and named it and then it wasn't until later on when it got some size I got it sexed and it was a female <laughs> but that's all right um, yeah so that was sort of my keeping in my younger years um, I had about five years on a farm as well out uh, at Emerald Queensland so that's where I got to see you know black-headed pythons on the farm and carpet pythons and plenty of brown snakes um, and yeah you know cruising around riding horseback and then like plucking bearded dragons off the trees and like riding around with them on your shirt. And, <laughs> uh, so that was sort of my, I guess, childhood. And then interestingly, life steered me away from that kind of hobby and, and passion. I was out at Emerald and didn't know anyone. There was no Facebook groups. There was no nothing. Um, didn't have a scene, I guess, because um, it was sort of country Queensland, you know, out there, a good snake was a dead snake. And yep. even when I lived on that farm for that six-year period, that was while my mum was with my stepdad and he was a farmer and he used to kill everything he saw. So um, for me, I grew up with two sides of the coin where I was like passionate and and obsessed with reptiles. But at the same time, the older male role model in your family is teaching you that, you know, they're pests and, and they should be eradicated. Um, so that was a real conflicting you know, position for me to be in. And it wasn't until later in life that, um, you know, I could see how wrong that mindset was. And, and obviously that, that sort of was a trigger for me to, to go on to do some of the work I do now with snake education yeah. and awareness. I think that's the thing. That's such a, a common conception people have in the country areas that, you know, a dead snake's the only good snake's a dead snake. So I could see why, you know, you kind of thought that at one point, you know. Well, it's a it's a lack it's a huge lack of education, and that's um, right. And you know they they grow up with their fathers teaching them that, and their father teaches them that. And if you've got generations of farmers, that's all they know. And yeah, basically any wildlife that becomes a pest um, or a, you know a, a threat to their livelihood, just they just eradicate it. That's the general sort of um, mindset in 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 country Australia, but. I do see people changing. I get people on my page all the time saying that they used to have that mindset and they followed me for X amount of time and I've changed it. So that's always good to hear and, and you, you know, you try and focus more on that than the, the idiots on there sort of, That's right. Um, you know, giving you ignorant comments. Yeah, that's, yeah. It's like a little nugget of gold when you get a bit of feedback like that to know that you're doing something right and you, you are doing the world a favour by educating them on these fantastic animals. Yeah, well, that's it. And if I just if I get you know, people being too ignorant on there, um, I've 
I've been doing this for a long time now with the public education and I had a very steep learning curve uh, on the Sunshine Coast when I took over Richie Gilbert's business um, with the Sunshine Coast snake catchers and I had 30, you know, he gave me a Facebook page to run with 30,000 people on it mm. and um, I had to learn extremely quickly and, and also with part of that came learning how to deal with idiots and, and just focusing on the people that actually were trying to learn, you know, and yeah. asking asking questions and you just block and delete the others. Yeah. That's all you can do. It's pretty much social media in a nutshell, I think. Yeah. Yeah, yeah I, I definitely don't get wrapped around the axles anymore about um, I don't – you'll never see me online throwing my ego around and, and you know, trying to assert – what's right and wrong and stuff if I just if I see people that aren't willing to to be open and and sort of learn from people that are actually working in the field yeah, then exactly. then the beauty is you've got a block and a delete button there so you just yeah that's right yeah and then you save all your energy right you know yeah. there's no no point wasting your time on that kind of stuff so yeah it can be oh, end up with hair like me <laughs> <laughs> oh look I'm, I'm getting a bit there so it's happening <laughs> What got you into photography? Um, so I got into photography, uh, I guess, a little bit separately from hurt photography. Um, yeah. I started doing extensive travels through like Europe and Southeast Asia um, around 2000 sort of 10 onwards. And I just was drawn to photography as a, as a means to um, record my travels. I just yeah. wanted a bit of a hobby that I could take on the road with me and that's where I sort of started to learn learn the ropes. I'd, I'd get talking to people on buses, on trains, on planes, you know, if the, if the word photography came up or if you saw someone else with, with a decent bit of gear that was on a tour with you or a trip, you know, I'd just get talking and start learning from them and, and just had a keen interest in it. And yep. it, it wasn't until I combined, you know, travel, photography and herping all together, um, probably around 2015, mm-hmm. 2016 maybe. Yeah, 2016, uh, I went on a, a trip, um, you know, with Somerville and um, about eight other guys like Max and Lockie and um, Tom Charlton and, these guys at the time, you know, they're, they're like the dream team of, of herpers at the, at the time, you know, especially, young, yeah. you know, younger guys coming up sort of thing. And I was just doing snake catching at the time and that's how I met all those guys. And, um, you know, they told me they were going on this trip and I'm like, can I tag along and brought me camera gear with me and, and that was my first introduction to, to herp photography and I just fell in love. Um, I just thought this this is my calling, you know, I I had dreamed about being a wildlife photographer many times and like almost ditched my career path, you know, a lot when I was younger to, to sort of pursue wildlife photography. Um, yeah. And when I sort of went on that trip with those guys, I'm like, there's nothing better. You got the photography, you got the reptiles, you got the adventure going out, finding them all. Um, and then, you know, you come back with records of species um, through the photography shop side of it and um the best thing is i was with those guys for two weeks and learned a hell of a lot um and just came back basically obsessed and that that sort of is what sparked it all for me yeah that yeah. sounds like a very familiar story and I, I i have to say that like i think half the fun 
in herping is the chase. <laughs> that's right. And that's a pretty good um, for a group to go herping with for your first, for a solid first herb trip too. Oh, I, I look back on it now and, and once I sort of started to get into that scene and saw that these guys were sort of, you know, at the top of that scene, find, the fines they were getting, the photos they were getting, um, the trips they were going on um, was sort of, yeah, re- really the top of that. And, and to get invited along on a trip, it was, it was really um, advantageous for me and, and and I really have those guys to thank for sort of, I don't know, just sparking it for me and just showing me what was um, actually possible because, you know, the the 10 years before that um, in my 20s, I, I seemed to look around my circle and be the only one interested in this kind of thing. And it, it wasn't until that world opened up for me and I started to use social media. Like I, w- I wasn't even really on Facebook and stuff. I had an account, but I didn't really use it that much. And yeah. Um, when I started realizing there was hurt groups and photography pages and, and just this whole world opened up to me and, and yeah, I basically spent the next sort of five or six years catching up. (laughs) That's awesome. I I just kind of have to double back for a second, but how did you actually get started in your role relocating snakes on the Sunshine Coast? That, that was a bit of a, a, just a turning point in my life where, I just realized something was missing. I was, um, firefighting is my career. I've been a firefighter since I was 20 years old, joined, joined the army when I was 20 and stra- yep. straight in as a fiery. And I stepped away from that for about three years, uh, thinking that I had, you know, I wanted to follow a, a path, um, of business at the time. And it was all for the wrong reasons. It was just to keep me on the sunshine coast. And I started furnishing hotels, um, and it was basically doing furniture packages and running them to different hotels and installing them and stuff like that. And then I decided to make a business out of it. And I got three years in and I was just utterly, I don't know, bored with it. I was just like, I'm not doing what, what's wrong here. Something's missing, you know. And I sat there one night, had a good hard look at my life and um, looked down at my arms and I had, you know, 200 hours of reptile tattoos and I was just like, what would I do all day, every day if I could um, do it for, you know, for free? What would be what I'd be passionate about? And I'd be like, work with reptiles. And just the penny dropped and I said to myself, that's what's missing. You're not actually living passionately about anything. You're not, you know, um, following your true sort of path. So I just thought, okay, I need to start working with reptiles. I just need to start doing it. Um, doesn't matter if it's just on the side. Um, and the next day I started Googling snake catches and, and obviously being on the Sunshine Coast, Richie's business popped up because he was sort of number one at the time. And um, I just sort of rang him up out of the blue and he was like, oh, yeah, you know, another guy seeing my videos wanting to snake catch. Um, and he sort of just told me the three things I needed. I needed, you know, a venomous snake handling course. I needed um, insurance and I needed um a permit. So basically I said, yep, cool. I'll contact you when I've got all, all of those. And then in that time he added me on Facebook and he sort of had seen that I'd gone over to um, Indonesia and I'd found King Cobras over there. And, you know, I was actually into it and I wasn't just yep. a, another young sort of dude just ringing him up going, Oh, I, I don't know where to start kind of thing. I, I want to use, use you to get me in the, in the, in the door, you know? 
And then I guess he sort of just, I rang him back after four weeks and said, cool, man, I've got all those four things that you said um, or three things that you said. And um, I said, when do I start, you know? And uh, he's like, okay, come and hang out and we'll, we'll go on some call outs. And that was the start of our friendship. And within six months, I was such a fast learner and so dedicated to it that um, he handed me his business because the dude was pretty worn out. And um, yeah. uh, he had three young kids and, and a wife that was pretty sick of him being on call 24 hours a day. Um, 30,000 people on Facebook was was and having to do educational posts and answer questions and just maintain that was just running him ragged. So he was like, mate, I need a yeah. break. I need someone to take over the business. And obviously where I was at in life, you know, I was, I was 30 at the time or 32, so I could run a business and took it over, gave him a break and it, it gave me my start sort of in this, in this sort of world. How long did you work there doing that for? I took it over for 12 months. Um, so yep. all, all up, I worked for him for a year and a half. And then my plate was so full. I was, I went, so I, I got rid of the business, the furniture business, and I went back to firefighting because the four on four off roster was just perfect for me to basically do the snake catching, you know, half the time. Um, yep. But my job was then in Toowoomba, which was three hours away from the sunny coast. So I was doing, I was living in Toowoomba on my four on where I was working. I was snake catching for the snake catcher in Toowoomba um, on my days where I had night shift. Yep. <laughs> and then I'd travel back to the Sunshine Coast on my four days off and I'd catch for four days straight as well as run the business and do the f Facebook page. And my plate was just, I, I loved it at the time, but it, I was I was getting worn out. I was, you know, it was really sort of taking a toll on me and then, um, a position came up with my company to move to WA and it just seemed like the right time to sort of head over and, and take that opportunity. And in 2016, I, I moved over to WA and that's where I moved away from the snake catching side because there was a lot of politics. There was a lot of turf wars. Um, and I was just like, you know what, I'm going to have a fresh start and I'll leave the snake catching behind me. It was a good phase of my life. It taught me a lot. Um, got a lot out of it, and then when I went to WA, it was just photography, photography, photography. So, that's insane. That's yeah. a, a hell of a um, trial by fire, you know, getting thrown into that for a year, and I can't imagine you had much time to even sleep in that period of time by <laughs> no. the sounds of it. No, mate, it was it was pretty full on, especially if you're getting call-outs. Because we used to cover, on the sunny coast, we used to cover 100 Ks. So Man. from from Noosa down to Caboolture and you were just zipping up and down the sunny coast um, doing call-outs and, and then inland a bit as well. Mm. And, um, yeah, there's there's times there in summer where you were doing 10, 11 call-outs a day yourself and, yeah. and then all the kilometres in between. Yeah. And then, um, you know, one thing I did do is all the catches that Richie had um, – kind of on the fringes that he would sort of get to help him out. I In that year that I took over the business, I got us all uniforms. I sort of brought everyone closer and kind of under the banner of Sunshine Coast Snake Catchers, sort of made us a bit more of a professional unit. And, you know, when I gave the business back to him, um, it was in a better play, better spot than, than it was, you know. So 
I think the Facebook page, I, I grew it to about 40,000 by the time I handed it back to him. And, um, you know, by the time he sold it to Stuart uh, McDonald, I think it was up to 70,000. So, yeah, Max yeah. and Lockie took it back over and then they, they uh, kept growing it. So, yeah. I mean, you're in the right area too up there. There's a hell of a lot of snakes on the sunny coast. I did a short period of time living with uh, my parents, moved up there for a short period of time, and I lived in Doonan for oh, must have been nine months or something, been just an acre or two, and there was plenty of snakes frequenting that property. Oh, yeah, that uh, southeast Queensland pocket is is probably the most dense for species, and, um, yeah, there's a lot there, mate. You, you've obviously got a lot of different habitats Um and then you know, good rainfall and, and good temperatures. So it's uh, it's great for species there. Yeah, yeah. I remember working under my car one day. I was just in the in the gravel driveway, and I was right under. I was mucking around with the exhaust on it, and I leant over to pick up a screwdriver or something like that. And there's this green tree snake just staring at me from like a few inches away. Just startled the hell out of me. And I remember headbutting the exhaust, like trying to get up. But yeah, yeah. Like, like it was just. Uh, a tree, a tree snake. <laughs> yeah, we, we had an instance where I was chasing my brother around. Um, oh, he would have been maybe nine or something at the time. Mm-hmm. And we were running around like the, the big Queenslander deck or whatever, went down into the garage and he was flying around in front of me. And there was a big EB in there. He's probably like a five or six foot EB just sitting in the garage, just getting out of the sun or whatever. And I had to quickly grab my brother and throw him behind me and shut the door and let the snake do the snake and yep. get out of there or whatever he needed to do. But yeah, there yep. was plenty of snakes around. Yeah, yeah. Um, EBs are the. Uh, I've got really fond memories of EBs because, um, as I mentioned before, I snake snake caught out at Toowoomba as well, and you went from being on the sunny coast where it was like maybe um, one in twenty snakes might be an EB, um, whereas you go out to Toowoomba and probably eight out of ten snakes that we were getting were were EBs out there. So. That was yeah. really valuable um, being out there and, and catching and handling so many EBs. That was, um, you know, so valuable for me as a handler to sort of get that experience um, and then, you know, helps me out now when I'm photographing dangerous species by myself out in the middle of nowhere. And, um, yeah, that was yeah quite a good time in my life. So fond memories. So, I mean, as most people that listen to this podcast know, Jason and I aren't exactly the the most uh, frequenting people with venomous snakes. But that's right. I did do a short period of time with a local wildlife group here, where I actually um, did a venomous snake handling course, and you know, would go out and do a few relocations and stuff like that for for this group. Yeah, <clears throat> pardon me. Um, but doing that course, I remember being in. Um, at Centennial Park or whatever in the middle of the city and that's where we were actually doing this course outside this kind of like a little shack essentially, like a little education shack. And it must have been 35 degrees that day and the last snakes that we got to handle were the Eastern Browns. <laughs> that was not fun. Yeah, I needed new undies by the end of that. Bit. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, you're, you're getting taught to pick these things up by the tail. You know, there's no hooks involved sort of thing. Like it's yeah. just t- timing in a hoop bag essentially. Like it yeah. was, yeah, yeah trial I'm by fire. I mean, yeah, that's thrown in the deep end for sure. Especially if you're on you're on your course, you you know you want to be sort of getting to hot EBs later in your progression. But um, yeah, that's definitely thrown in the deep end. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, it's 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 interesting, you know, coming from a you know I do you know, I have trainer and assessor in my qualifications, and I have to train firefighters under me and stuff like that. And um, 
as a trainer, I don't think I'd be putting people in that in that situation. But some, some I personally people, don't think I would want to be in that situation. I probably would have stepped nah. aside. Yeah, like that, that early on. Yeah, you yeah. need to you need to have it as controlled as possible in a training scenario, especially you know with newbies. But yeah, but, yeah I guess you would have had more experience than some than a lot of people on that course. Or yeah, I, I mean, I would have. But in but, saying, saying that, it was still you know most of my experiences more non-venomous animals that don't move so quick you know yep. so yep yeah but no that was an interesting day like they, they warmed us up with um you know things like red bellies and and, and that sort of stuff which mm-hmm. were, they weren't too bad but you know it's kind of like they'd let one go in a wood pile or under a whole bunch of sheets or something like that and you got to go and find it safely and yeah well that's put it really in the good bag. yeah, yeah really like good. It, it was good fun but yeah I definitely need new undies after those extra grants. That was, <laughs> that was pretty nerve-wracking. Yeah. I can only imagine. Yeah, no, that's – um. yeah, I don't think I'd have the um, the balls to tail an Eastern Brown personally. Well, the thing that I kind of found the most interesting about them, and, I mean, Ross is going to know this way better than I would, but they kind of taught us a technique which, correct me if I'm wrong, with good technique or bad technique here, Ross, like, where they you you almost walk around them with the hoop bag as a shield against your legs, and it's like the brown almost turns around towards you or whatever, and you almost just scoop them in one one swoop. That that is that is one way to do it. Um, do do that with a a wild one that's sort of you know. Uh, so with eastern browns, they've got that defensive posture, and they hold their you know a lot of the time they hold their ground, especially while they're doing that. Um, so. Because their forebody is reared so far off the ground, it's quite easy to then scoop them like that. And if you can just flick their tail in with a hook, um, that's a pretty easy way to catch them. So that that's sort of how you can do it with with those snakes. Um, anything else that's more flighty, um, don't think you're going to do that with a tie pan. Um, <laughs> you know, anything else that doesn't really have that big forebody rear off the ground is going to be a bit harder to do that with. Um, you know, I've seen Brian Bush do it a different way, where he'll like he's got he's got these hooks, and they have a flat edge on them, and you can use them to lightly pin. Um, so I've seen him, you know, in his courses, he'll lightly pin the snake, and then they'll want to move forward, and he'll just have the the bag there ready to go, and when he unpins them, they shoot straight into the bag. So you know, there's there's advanced techniques like that. Obviously, you got to be very careful if you're putting a steel hook on a snake's back. Um, That's right. You, you got to know your stuff, and obviously Brian Bush does. But yeah, but yeah, um, I prefer just. I mean, when when you're snake catching, you've you've basically just got to tail tail it. Um, you know, there's <laughs> these people that sort of try and do it with um, tongs and stuff like that, and they're grabbing it mid body, and then they're the snakes flailing around, and you know, almost I've I've seen it happen where they've been <laughs> been bitten because they've grabbed it with tongs too far back and it swung around and bit them on the boot. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's you know, you're not playing with toys, that's for sure. Yeah, that's why I choose to not play with them at all. It's just not my <laughs> cup of tea. I don't get me wrong, I love them, but it's just not my thing. Yeah, which, look, that's the that's a self-preservation way of looking at it, you know, but yeah. um, I, I was way too, you know, I'm way too, hand, like, I, I just I'm I'm too excited. I love it. Um, yeah. I, you know, when I was in Toowoomba, if I was working my day shift, and Dave was out catching Browns all all day, um, he might have 
uh, a lot of the time he he would have like five or six browns in a bat in in bags, and I'd be like, hang hang on a sec before you go and release them. Let me let me come there, and I'll go and release them with you. And every single one, I'd get out of the bag and I'd handle. And that's just for me. It was building experience um, and just becoming a better catcher at the time, and and just getting more more hands on with it. It if if you're that way inclined. And you want to be kind of at the top of your level when you're handling. That's what you've got to do. Just get your hands exactly. on as as much of it as possible. You know. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was the way I did it. Practice makes perfect, so they say. Yeah, that's right. Yep. Yeah. Don't get me wrong. I still love them all the same, and I'd love to photograph some of them one day. But just yeah. Well, each yeah, to their own. Yeah, you start off doing it, um, you know, with someone who's just got more experience in that in that sort of field that can teach you a few things and um, then you know, might be able to do what I do and do it by yourself <laughs> uh, one day. One day, maybe. Yeah. We'll see. So, I want to jump into a little bit of your kind of like recent herping trip because you recently yep. went up to the Kimberley, didn't you? I did. I did. Um, that was a trip that turned out a little bit differently than – than what was meant to be because uh, they had such big rains in um, about March. They had some of the biggest flooding they've had in a long time and it just absolutely destroyed the roads up there. And then the yeah. funny thing is it didn't really rain much from March to May, but the damage was so extensive that they had a lot to do to clean everything up. And it, I timed it. I thought I timed it perfectly this time um, in May and then um, – yeah, I pretty much couldn't do hardly any of the gib and I had planned to go to Mitchell Plateau again, uh, yeah. tick off the species up there that I hadn't got last time like Felicipoda and, yeah, Western Giant Cave Geckos and a um, couple of other things and, yeah, couldn't couldn't even get up there. So I had to basically go to Kununara and I love it around there. There's so much to do. So um, I ended up just sort of taking about a week to get up there and, then spending around two weeks in Kununurra and and um, just had the best time. It's it's really awesome up there. Although it did cool down about six weeks early, so hardly any activity on the roads at night. Yeah. Um, you know, just the old cold tolerant species or something. But yeah, I was seeing very little activity. So it was one of those things where if you want to go and herp and look for stuff, you've got to get out in the habitat and and know the habits and the habitat and, and sort of what you're doing if you're going to find stuff in cooler weather. Yeah, it's a little bit more extreme than just road cruising up on a few snakes or something like that and getting into pose nicely, that's for sure. Yeah. So w- what sort of species did you end up finding on that trip? Um, just a lot of common stuff, but I'll start from the start. I got um, a butler eye on the way up. Um, so I, I only have to drive about five, six hours till I'm in butler eye habitat. And um, I've got some sort of friends out there that I know um, that I stopped in at and sort of had a bit of a coffee with in the afternoon. I was just waiting for it to get dark so that I could sort of do my usual run through Butler Eye Habitat on the way up to the Kimberley. And then, um, yeah, I got, just got really lucky, um, waited for it to get dark, pulled over, had a little bit of food. Um, and then as soon as the sort of uh, sun set enough, I took off in the Amarok and within 300 metres I had one. <laughs> oh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, sitting on the side of the road. So, 
that was super lucky. But in saying that, I had I have been for those snakes, I'd say about fifteen individual trips for that species. And over the five years that I've been here, I've only found them three times. Wow, that's yeah. crazy. So that's they're just yeah, they're just one of those species. It's a lot of dedication to try to find, you know, a single species like that. If if you have to put in that many yards. Yeah, well, luckily for me, I love herping and I love the arid country. So when I first got to WA, um, that was sort of one of the, I remember coming over here just for two weeks of work um, before I got transferred over here and I had the middle weekend off and I hired a car and was straight up into Butler Eye country, just spent two days up there. It was was like January, so it was ridiculously hot. Um, I was, (laughs) you know, never going to find a Butler Eye in in that heat. Um, But, you know, it was a cool trip. Yeah, something about that arid country really appeals to me as well. Like I've only been to to Alice and um, Uluru and stuff like that once, but man, it's just a magical sort of country. It's completely different from anything here on the east coast. Yeah, for for me, growing up in sort of Queensland, um, you know, seeing a lot of rainforest and um, you know, living on the Sunshine Coast where it's pretty green and pretty wet, and um, coming over here, the the arid country for me was, you know, some of the best trips I've done. Like I love the Pilbara. Um, I love the Tanami, West McDonald Ranges, um, and Great Victoria Desert was another one. That's that's an amazing place. Yeah. Um, so what else did you kind of end up finding up after that? Um, so the next species I was – oh, so the next species I was targeting – was your black-headed Wellsie. They're my sort of nemesis at the, since I've been over here in WA. And, yeah, I've been for them so many times and they're not, I don't know, um, you know, I hear I hear guys like Busho and that sort of tell me and, and my mate Dan who's been, you know, herping WA for 20-odd years growing up and he, he reckons that maybe one in 20 you might get um, a black-headed more for the of the Wellsie. Yep. Um, and I have spent, so last year I spent a whole week every single night um, on them. And then earlier this year did the same thing, went up there, right time of year, um, whole week again, every single night and um, couldn't get a hold of one. And, and I don't know, it's probably my fifth or sixth time going up there for them. And uh, yeah, just can't seem to get a hold of them. Plenty of, plenty of the normal red form. But yep. just can't, can't, the blackhead can't get the blackhead at the moment. So yeah, they're stunning those ones. Oh, they're yeah, probably arguably the sexiest adder in Australia. Definitely, yeah, yeah. definitely. Yeah, and and if you get a nice a nice you know individual, I don't think you can beat that. Like, there's something about the blackhead on it too that just makes it those colours pop that little bit more. I reckon. Yeah, yeah, they're they're stunning. Yeah. So anyway, I was looking for that, but. Um, as you probably know from that butler eye shot and and the black-headed python shot the, it was going to be a full moon so yes. I, I had yep. yeah i had sort of stuff all time um before the moon was rising um and then in the end i ended up just settling for a black-headed python and um the, i saw the moon coming up so i'm like yes perfect timing take it off the road and um set it up for a uh a shot and then yeah that sort of turned out to be one of my best shots yeah, yeah that moon behind that that black headed python's spectacular 
Yeah. Yeah, um, Nat Geo just published uh, just published it on their um, Instagram. So I'm that's awesome. Pretty stoked for that. Was it a single shot? Like, so you managed, you got all that in one shot? Yeah, yeah. I I don't do composites. Um, yeah. I just just do a single shot, and um, that that technique I've attempted many times before, and then you know nothing's come of it. But this this time I just seemed to to nail it. Um, yeah. The first time I tried it was with the with the butler eye. Um, it was a really calm snake. Um, after about ten or fifteen minutes, it just sat there. Um, don't know whether it was just something to do with the light or the the moon or whatever, or just the fact that it was also a really calm individual. But it just sat perfectly still. So I was just like quick adjustment of the settings um, and did like a long exposure with it and. You, the way you do it is you, you hit the flash and that lights up your foreground and then if the snake happens to move while your 30-second shutter is is um, open and absorbing all the light from the night sky, um, it doesn't matter if something moves in the foreground. So a lot, of, a lot of people spin out when they see that style of shot and I got a few negative comments of like, oh, you know, snake's never going to sit that long um, for 30 seconds and the way you do the technique is... You only exactly. need it, it doesn't matter. Yeah, you only need it to sit uh, for, a, for a few seconds while you fire that flash. Yeah, because that's one thing I love about your style is you're not just so also focused on just the animal. You've also got the landscape in there as well. So yeah. it gives you the person look at the image, you know, more to look at than just the animal. It's not just the picture of, say, the, the snake. It's, it's the whole landscape as well. Yeah, well... Look, I'm not the first to do that style of photography. Like, oh. you know, Mac, Max and Lockie were sort of dabble, yeah, dabbling in that do. and they've got some great wide-angle um, shots and, and that's sort of what I, you know, when I obviously got into photography, when I looked across the spectrum of what was being produced, the ones that grabbed my eye were the wide-angle um, style and I'll give yep. you, I'll tell you why. Um, you t- as a photographer, because I love, you know, being a photographer – as a photographer, you're trying to tell the, tell a story with your photo, and yep. a ID style shot tells only the story of that snake or that sorry that individual. It shows the diagnostics. It's on that forty five degree angle, and it, and it really shows you every feature of that animal. So that's great for ID books. But with my style of photography, I saw that the wide angle style captured the habitat in the background and then you could get the sun you can get the moon you can get um, light filtering through trees um, and then you can tell the story of the habitat that that animal lives in as well so that was just what I was drawn to and and I I could have wasted a lot of time just getting ID shots yes Um, but I just figured everyone was doing that everyone already had their photos in in field guides and there was guys doing id shots way better than i was so i just thought i'm going to do this for me um and when i started out i didn't have the photography page or anything so i was just doing these shots for me i just wanted to see when i looked back at the record of that animal i wanted to see it tell a story of where it lived and and what was in the background so yeah that's when you're doing your sorry when you're doing your long exposures are you using a tripod 
Um, or are you kind of because thirty yeah. seconds is pretty long to hold it still. <laughs> yeah, you have you have you can't be you can't be handheld if you're doing yeah. the thirty second exposure or even even a few seconds. Or, even yeah, one yeah, or two. Yeah, like half a second. You're going to get yeah. blur. Um, so you need to have it. Um, I'm not using a tripod. What I what I generally use now is my you know those Manfrotto brackets with the twin flash that yep. that sort of everyone starts out with and they put the flashes on the arms. Yep. Um, I when I bought one of those and and obviously under the advice of the guys that were using them and then sort of quickly realized because I, I wasn't doing ID style shots, I didn't really like the lighting that they gave off. Um, yep. I, I believe having one source of light is better because light and shadows work synonymously with each other. And if you get rid of the shadows, then you're sort of taking away an element of the photo. You know, you need light and you need shadows. That's right, So, yeah. So when you put, um, if you want to do ID style photography, yeah, put a flash either side because all you're trying to do is light up that animal as perfectly as possible. And you want to see all the scalation and everything. Exactly, exactly. And, and yeah, I'd sort of moved away from that. So my twin flash bracket now just acts as a ground tripod. And it just yep. it just holds the camera horizontal so that the f- lens doesn't tip forward into the dirt, and then that helps me in two ways. It helps me if I want to leave the camera there for a long exposure, um, and it also helps me if I'm photographing something dangerous. Then I can drop the camera at at an instant and and back away from it as quick as I need to, or, or let my hands go, and the camera still sits there on the ground. Yeah. So that's sort of the what I now use um, that flash bracket for. Yeah. And um, how with your wide angle? How wide's your lens? Are you a prime lens, or are you using like a zoom wide wide angle? I've got two. So I've got a. I've experimented with a few different lenses, but now I'm just down to a Tamron seventeen to thirty five mil, um, yep. and that just gives me a bit of focal length to work with if I'm photographing something a little dicey i can sort of get back a little bit further from it and and use that zoom um and then the other lens i've got in the wide angle fashion is the um venus lauer 15 mil and that's a that's a prime or i guess it's not not a traditional prime because you can sort of the way it focuses it sort of moves moves a little bit but yeah um yeah it's pretty much a a standard uh 15 millimeter wide angle macro um and I'm I'm leaning towards photographing more and more species with that these days. Um, obviously, the more comfortable you get when you're photographing dangerous stuff, you can sort of start to read the behaviour a lot better, and you can start to push the envelope a bit and get a bit closer. Um, but that's that's me. I don't I don't recommend anyone jumping straight into trying to photograph venomous snakes at at 15 millimeters. Yeah, no, nah, definitely not. Yeah, <laughs> yeah definitely not. I always see those shots of you getting, you know, within six oh. inches or so of some of these animals, and I'm just going, man, that's some balls of steel right there. Like, I just because looking at the, the the pictures you take, you don't actually realise how close you are when you're shooting with such a wide angle lens. Yeah, like to get that animal that close, like yeah. until you actually see a picture of you taking a picture of it, and then it's like yeah. Jesus. Yeah, I I try to throw that in there a little bit, um, obviously. I try and keep myself out of it as much as possible and my videos are generally just me showing the animal. But yeah, 
it is sort of working against me a little bit and everything I read about social media is you need to be in front of the camera, you need to give the audience a little bit more than just like they want to know who you are, they want to know how you're doing it, how close you're getting, all that sort of stuff. So those times are when I sort of give in to like, you know, that sort of part of it. But um, I have so far tried to keep myself out of it as much as possible and keep it about the animals, Um, although it does sort of work against me a little bit when it comes to like building a following and building your brand and and getting people just knowing you better and knowing what you do and and that. And you're using a a single flash now instead of the double. So are you using like a softbox or are you just kind of adjusting your flash? Yeah, I'm using, I've got two soft boxes. So I, well, one's not really a soft block, it's just a diffuser. But the, the main one I'm using now, I'll set up my tripod because I'm, I'm usually photographing by myself. So I'll yep. set up my tripod beside me and I'll have a, I've got a 40 inch um, umbrella diffuser. And I can't remember the brand of it. What is it? Speed something. It's it's like a yeah it's a forty inch umbrella diffuser and it basically just sits on the tripod and lights up the whole scene um, and I've found that to be um, the easiest way for me to photograph by myself yeah um, whereas a lot of a lot of other guys might hold their flash um, and then they might have a mate helping pose the animal they're holding a flash and they're sort of getting down on a forty five and if you're going to photograph ID style stuff photographing up on a 45 works quite well if you can hold your own flash but because I get down right down low I'm on the animal's level and basically laying on the ground so that I can get the habitat in the background um, I need a a light source that's just going to be reliable and and sort of set up um, right beside me on a tripod so that's sort of how I do it yeah because I need I need to pose the other thing too is I need to pose the animal that's um, right myself and then um have the camera ready to go so i've sort of developed my style over the years and it's it's working well for me and um, it's probably one of the reasons also why i shoot so close to the animal is because if i'm photographing a monitor or a skink or a dragon then i'll be laying on the ground i'll have it posed i'll be posing it in front of my lens and then my lens will be my camera will be sitting there um, so I'll be posing it and then I'll bring one can back to the, the camera and then just as I take my hand out of the frame, I'm hitting that that shutter. So that's the advantage for me to, to shoot so wide as well and get so close. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's absolutely great. I love that um, that wide close close stuff. It's, just that, not, um, it's, not for, it's not for everyone. Like I, there are some purists that will say, oh, I don't like it because it, it misses some of the di- diagnostics of the animal. So you might sometimes not get the angle of your um, terrain right. And if you don't have that sloping sort of angle, then you'll miss the back of the snake and the, and the tail will be kind of blurred out if your settings are wrong. Um, so that there is an art to getting the whole animal in the frame and relatively in focus. Um, but there are purists out there that just don't like it, which is each their own. Beauty exactly. is the eye of the beholder. That's right. It's art at the end of the day as well. So, you know, everyone has different opinions on different styles of art. So, 
It's all subjective. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Did you get that absolutely cracking shot of that Kimbo on your last trip? I did. Yeah, that was my May trip up in the Kimberleys. And that was, remember how I said I couldn't get up to Mitchell Plateau? Um, yeah. Mitchell Plateau was where I first saw my first two. And then they were too skittish, couldn't get anywhere near them. Like one was out basking and it just had a crack right beside it that it could just shoot down. So I got an in situ of it with the long lens. Um, so it is handy to have a, a long lens for that sort of stuff. Um, and that's all I got. Um, every other one I saw, um, I saw the other one multiple times, but it was that skittish that you couldn't get within 50 yards of it. So you could spot it basking as soon as you sort of tried to get within range of a photo, it would just disappear. And um, this time it was the complete opposite. I was um, canoeing the Ord River, um, which is a amazing place, oh, part of the Kimberley um, around Kununara there and um, stopped for lunch and we were just up on this rocky kind of escarpment and I was sort of jumping off the rock into the water with a couple of friends and um, as I came back up, these two that I was with were not reptile people at all. They were just a, a couple that were on the on the sort of trip and um, one of them, I had mentioned that I was, you know, into my photography and they saw me doing a lot of photography with the long lens from the boat because I was photographing a lot of freshies on the way. Yep. And yeah, as we as I sort of climbed back up from jumping off the rock, she's like, "Oh, there's a lizard there." And I looked up, and two meters in front of me is this juvenile glowder just sitting there basking. And it and it almost like we were there for a fair while. It, it was almost like it came out inquisitively to see what was going on, because because we were there for a good hour, and uh, maybe it was just an hour where that it, it got used to us and it was like kept coming closer and closer and then yeah um then yeah proceeded to catch it and <laughs> pose it for photos <laughs> yeah, yeah but like, it was great it was a great monitor it was completely opposite to a lot of other monitors it was because it was younger i do find that juveniles can it, when you get juvenile space uh you know juvenile individuals it can go one of two ways they can be um, more curious and willing to get more closer because they haven't grown up, I guess, with a lot of danger around or they haven't developed those, you know, natural instincts that that generally people equal not fun um, yep. or, you know, just whatever, for whatever reason. Um, sometimes the juveniles are just really curious and uh, in this case that was one of them. Yeah, the colour on that, Kimbo, on the pattern is beautiful, like, None of the captive ones look like that. No. Yeah, they're they're stunning, especially in that yeah. region. Yeah, yeah, they're stunning. Yeah, and yeah, yeah e even the one I got up at Mitchell Plateau wasn't as nice as this one. Yeah, um, that's but, probably but, one of the best ones I've seen. I think. But given that it's a juvenile as well, so you yeah, know, they true. they get a bit you know beat up, scarred up, and a bit bit more dull as they as they get older, and yeah. obviously it depends what. Um, phase of, of shed they're in as well and but yeah just got got really lucky in in that regard but um obviously the the trips before that yeah I've, I've gone from probably five or six times and only seen them once before that so the, these are the times where you get lucky and everyone's like oh you're so lucky or um i don't know 
they just don't see the the times that you miss out on them. That's right. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly right. Like not not that it compares at all, but like locally, I go looking for for death adders quite regularly over the the warmer months of the year here, and like I'm lucky to get a couple a year sort of thing in the local area because they're not exactly super common or anything like that. But when you do, it's kind of like you know this is all worth it. I've been out here, you know. 20, 30 nights or something like that. And finally, I get that red phase one or whatever that I'm after. And yeah, you know, yeah, that's, that's the best, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. You know how much work you've put into there and you spend like, you know, maybe half an hour with the animal just watching it do its thing or something like that. And you're like, it was all for that, you know? Yeah. That was it. Now, that Kimberly Rock monitor shot was insane. I, I showed it to my wife and I was like, yeah, this is what I want for my birthday. I need this precision <laughs> put on the wall. <laughs> I've, uh, I, I listened to, um, you know, obviously, when you guys contacted me about the podcast, um, I sad to say I didn't know that um, it, it was up and running, and and this is what you guys were doing. But uh, I listened to Jake Meanies and, and Somerville's, and and uh, it was good to hear those guys, you know, um, talk about their neck of the woods and 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 sort of the species that that they they're going for. And um, you had mentioned quite a few times about um, you know. Kimberly Rock monitors and uh, and Gil and I, so mm-hmm. I, I yeah. figured they'd be coming up in this one. <laughs> <laughs> Gil and I are like my arch nemesis. I've granted I've only been there once to look for them, and I definitely have to go back to look for them. But I felt like I looked in thousands of trees. Like I was just like all day, yeah. every day that I was there looking in trees, looking for scat, seeing if I could find anything. Yep. Any any sort of indication to say that they were there. Um, the one thing that I did find disappointing, and I did touch on this, I think, is the amount of stripped bark that I found around that area, especially when you're closer yeah. to the highways. That was yeah. quite heartbreaking. I, I heard, um, I heard that, and um, it's something I see all the time as well. Um, and if you're gonna, you know, if you're gonna look behind bark, um, it's. I mean, you and I are different. Um, we're 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 out there to see the animals, at, not at the expense of ruining their habitat. Um, yeah. But it, it doesn't take much to like whenever I find those tree dwelling species that are behind bark, um, all you got to do is half the time you can see them and all you got to do is just lift a little bit of bark and you can see them in there. And the the added advantage to that is it doesn't run away because it's safe under yep. that bark. Whereas you strip a big piece of bark off, you might see it, but if it's warm, that thing's gone. Mm. So, and then it's not going to be there next time for anyone else. And I mean, you guys already covered it with, with Matt and that, so I won't go into it, but it disgusts me as well. Annoys yeah. me. Yeah. 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 It's one of those things, unfortunately. Yeah, I, I see it a fair bit locally with like smashed book rock, uh, bush rock and stuff like that, or, you know, it's yeah. quite clearly been flipped over or something like that and not put back where it was and stuff. So, yeah. Yep. Un- unfortunately, those guys are usually the poaching kind and they're, they're not out there to give a crap about the animals or the habitat or longevity of that population. Yeah, you know, and, you know, I'd like to be able to bring them one day when I have kids, if I become that pr- proven breeder, then I'd like to be able to bring them back here and, you know, show them where I kind of grew up looking for lizards and stuff like that and, you know, it'd be yeah. nice to kind of share that same experience with them. But, you know, anyway... On a different note, speaking about Gil and I and bringing that up, seeing as you've already kind of opened the floodgates there, I have to ask, how much yep. how much time did you actually spend trying to find some of those guys out there to get those shots? Well, you're going to hate me because um, Gil and I... Were- <laughs> Don't do that to me. <laughs> yeah, you're going to hate me when I tell you this story. Gil and I were 
pretty uh, easy for me. Um, okay. Actually, the first time it <laughs> the first time I ever went from them was back in 2016, and that was around Alice Springs, and that was with uh, Herper that lived there at the time, and he was pretty ruthless with the bark, and yeah. that was my first. You know, that was when I was just getting into herping and stuff, and um, there were none around um, around that Alice area, so you know those spots have been hit pretty hard and 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 obviously the bark was pretty torn off a lot of those trees um but when you sort of get more into a bit more virgin habitat um and once you've had a bit more practice going for tree doing species like those monitors that live under the bark once you found other ones they're pretty much all the same like bush eye uh artists they're all the same um so once you've sort of found one, um, it's and and you sort of get your eye in for that habitat and and sort of their habits, um, they're they're fairly easy. So my first successful one of those was out on the way um, up in the Tanami. So I got two in the Tanami on that trip, and one was in pretty dense um, mulga woodland, um, and then the other one I was just driving through the Tanami, and I just saw one tree. And I was just like, that looks like the only suitable habitat that a gill and I is going to be in and went over and saw one in a, in a crack within, um, yeah, within a couple of seconds. And same, same as the other one, it only took me about 10 minutes in the right habitat to find one. So I think it could have been because you've gone once and you've gone to a popular place, um, yeah. that, could have been, that could have been your downfall. Whereas if you sort of can get out to a bit more virgin bushland or or something like that you'll 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 have a bit more luck yeah i think i think next time that i go like hypothetically even if i went to the same area or something you know if i was to stop on one of those highways or something i'd like to just go inland you know just walk it just walk as far as i can sort of thing for the for the day or something like that or for the morning or something like that just to get off that kind of first couple of hundred meters you know so yeah a few k in or something like that 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 is that's a theory, but I don't think you need to do it. Um, I yeah. the first one I found was literally, and I've done this with busho, uh, sorry, bush eye, and um, a lot of those other species where you just walk off the road and they're in the trees right beside the road. It's just yeah, that okay. you've got to be somewhere where um, local herpers aren't smashing those spots or, or, or sorry, poachers or, or whatever. So if you go out to the yeah. Tanami, there's, there's, there's no one out there regularly going to these spots. If you, if you see that habitat, um, just jump off the road and, and, and have a look through it. It's, it's a lot easier when you're close to your car and yeah. you can just walk a lo- along the road, uh, than going inland. Yep. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I've found three and two of them were right sort of, within eyesight of, of the road. Oh, that's awesome. I have to say though, that but, shot that you do have that one in front of Uluru, that's yeah, that's a cracker. So that, that must have been right <laughs> in the park there, <laughs> hey. This is the one you're gonna hate me for because I didn't I wasn't even <laughs> I wasn't even targeting it. Um I was out there mid morning and um was trying to look for somewhere to just pull over and have a, a bit of a feed and uh, pulled into one of the sunset viewing areas but the there was there's one for the buses and then there's one for the cars and i'm like oh yep. there'll be no one in the, there'll be no one in the bus one this time of day i'll just go and hang out in there and i just had some lunch 
went for a bit of a walk to walk it off and I noticed um, noisy miners just harassing something on the ground and it was a gill and I. It was just walking <laughs> across the ground. <laughs> so I just went over and went over and picked him up. And because I was at the viewing area, I was in view of the, the rock. So I just put him on the nearest suitable uh, bit of mulga tree and, and took photos of him with the rock there. So that was just yeah. one of those ones where right time, right place. Um, yeah, whereas other times, you know, you've got to go actually and put in the hard yards. But that's... Yeah, I'm sorry about that, man. <laughs> Between you and Matt, you're both breaking my heart. That's for sure. But no, that's all good. That's um, that shot is absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. Like I, I can't get enough of that. Every time I see that, I, I have to kind of spend a minute or two just admiring it. It is really a beautiful photo, and especially because Gil and I are so close to my heart. You know, that's something that that I find really, really impressive, and another one on the on the birthday slash Christmas list. That's for sure. Uh, I was going to say I'm surprised that the the glad eyes on there before the the Gill and I. Yeah, well, you know, like as much as I love Gillens, I do have like you know more than a dozen of them to look at every day. Whereas I have one yeah. glad eye that I see on a blue moon. So, you yeah, know, yeah, to have one that I can look at permanently would be quite nice. And that that particular individual, as we were talking about, you know, my ones, my ones, my ones, beautiful in its own right, but it's not as vibrant as that little guy. That's for sure. Yeah. Yeah, no worries. Well, yep, I'll uh, I'll do your deal, mate. That sounds good. I know. I'll have to. We'll have to talk after this, bro. That, that's why. That's why you got me on here, wasn't it? Just to bat him up. Yeah. For, <laughs> yeah. Just, just to kiss ass and try to get some mates, right? That's for sure. <laughs> uh, well, you're doing all right. You're doing. All right. Uh, oh, that's good. I'm glad, glad to know. So, um. I have to ask, like, you know, you talked about going to um, the Tanami Desert and stuff. Like, where in Australia that you've been, would you class as being the most kind of inhospitable place that you've gone to photograph yeah. some of these animals? That that was it, the Tanami. That was it? Yeah. And, you know, Matt was talking about um, being there in a really dry, hot year. And I suspect it was the same year that, that I went. Um, I was there in... I think it was March. Yeah, it was March twenty, March twenty twenty. I think it was. Or no, that was during COVID. It must have been the year before, uh, twenty nineteen. Yeah, March twenty nineteen. So it was the end of, you know, what should have been a bit of a stormy season. They should have got some rain, and they just got none throughout that whole summer. And it was super dry. They had a crazy bushfire that went through and wiped out a lot of the spin effects through the West Max. And um, I had dreamed about going there for, for so long and that was my first time there. And as soon as I drove into the place and saw how decimated it was from that fire um, and there was still stuff smoking, you know, so they'd only gone through, you know, in the two-week period before I got there and I was just like, man, how's my luck? I drove all the way to the middle of Australia and from Perth, it's a fair hike and you've got to go across the Great Central Highway to sort of get there and a lot of dirt road and wear and tear on the car and stuff and you get there and then you're just like got this big list of species you want to find and that's what you're presented with. And um, things seem to estivate in, in really hectic, dry, hot periods like that. Um, a lot of your species 
um, aren't active. So I didn't see any Pyrrhus and, you know, talk to any sort of herper that's hurt the West Max and stuff. They usually get on to Pyrrhus. Um, and, you know, I was there the right time of year, but it was just a bad season. Um, but moving on from that, going to the Tanami, um, that was crazy, man. Like I, I saw on my car, it was it was late 40s, early 50s. Um, wow. That I was that I was dealing with, and then um, every night that I road cruised, um, I wasn't getting anything on the roads. It was just too hot. It was still like forty degree winds blowing it, you know, after, after dark. Um, and I was camped out. There's not a you know, as the boy said as well. There's not a speck of uh, shade around. So um, I was in my car, like running my car a couple of times, just just to have a bit of a, a nap in the aircon so that you could herp all night sort of thing and uh yeah that was really inhospitable so you've got to pick your time of year if you you're going to go hit up the tanami yeah um, that sounds absolutely I, brutal i spent i spent four days there and um i had, had only really allowed for three um but i had heard there was a lot of um road trains rolling through there because there was a mine that was further further north along that road and there was a lot of road trains with fuel that were rolling through there and uh, someone told me that if you run out of fuel along there, um, the road tank, the, the road trains will fill you up. So I actually had budgeted for my fuel and I could only stay there for about two or three days max. And then because it, conditions were so harsh and I wasn't getting on to really any of my target species, um, I ended up just staying around and road cruising an extra a night and ended up um, getting really low on fuel. And then as I drove up past a, a fuel stop there was two tankers pulled over having a feed and i just swapped them a couple of beers and they fueled me up so uh took a little risk there of you know running out of fuel but um it paid off and i actually got a woma on my last night um heading out of there so um i'd found two crispies that had been obviously hit and then uh turned into almost ash um while I was out there and then yeah got a woma on the on the last night so and and then the next morning yeah then the next morning I got a moloch as well so um the four I basically went four days with hardly anything and then on the way out I sort of got a few consolation species but I wouldn't have got them unless I sort of hung around for that extra day and and sort of got really low on fuel and winged winged it and paid off that's it. It goes back what, to that hours that you put into it, right? Like the more hours, the more likely you are to find these things. Exactly. Yep. That's, that's the What's thing. sort of your, um, your unicorn species that you've, you've gone a couple of times and haven't found yet? Well, it or is was that the, the Wellsy. It was Pyrrhus. Um, and then I got onto, I got onto one finally um, in, a, in, a, in a spot where it's really hard to get to and, and, no one's really photographed them for a long, long time there. I think they, they found a couple on surveys there when they initially surveyed the area and then, um, yeah, I couldn't believe it. I was going up to a Stellatus spot uh, with um, – I took Yari for a bit of a herp and we had four days and we, we I showed him probably one of the best four days of herping in his life, I think. We just got onto everything um, – and we yeah had to go up this um, you know cross cross a lot of mining sort of leases and stuff like that and four wheel drive up to this spot and then um, we got there a little late and as we pulled in there's to this sand plain habitat um, there's a pyrus laying on the side of the road and 
we were just gobsmacked. I nearly cried. I was there for – I had gone for it about 15 times over here in WA and just couldn't get on to any. Um, and, uh, yeah, it was just one of those surprise species. And then we got on to plenty of Stellatus as well that night. So that that was my nemesis. And now the current one is the black-headed Wellsy. I've put in um, lots and lots of hours and lots of Ks for that snake. That's massive. Yeah. Just a question. I know this isn't even on the list, but how have you, like in how have you gone for monitors in general? Like I'm talking like across the board from things like your your Tristus, your Scalaris, your Parentes, whatever. Um, yeah, I've got all those. Um, do you mean how many of how many species have I found? Yeah, like a, a lot, like because obviously it's almost like collecting stamps you know like you're, you're trying to target as many of these things as you you can oh yeah i i want to see as many as i can in the wild and obviously you know get that get that record for myself and maybe show a few people the the species that they never even knew that existed which happens a lot on my page yeah um so monitors for me are usually in my you know target species list when i go on a trip it's usually a lapids um pythons of interest and then you know monitors are pretty up there as well so um, i'm doing doing quite well in wa i haven't got aremius haven't got sparnus haven't got brevicorda but i think the rest of the wa species i've got um got really lucky and got indicus up in iron range when i went up there with max and Lockie and a couple of the other boys uh, so that was lucky. Haven't got rusty monitors. Uh, haven't, when we were up in Iron Range, it was me, Max, Lockie, and another snake catcher mate, Matt. And um, we split up to walk back to camp one time and Lockie and I went ahead and we were probably half an hour ahead of Max and Matt and um, they were taking their time and Lockie's like, I bet they've found something. I bet they've got something cool. And uh, they come back. And, um, you know, Max has got pretty good in situ shots of uh, a Keith Orneye. So, <laughs> and, you know, that was one of our huge targets up there. But we did get Indicus, which was a bit harder to get, and, and we got that. So that was epic. Um, but if, you, if you're ever on my Flickr and you go back to those shots, I've just got the worst shot of this Indicus. So it's just, it's just laying on a log and it would not, you know, lift its head for a second. It was just just decided to not play the game. So I think the only one that got a good shot of it was Max and that's because he photographed it with its head facing down and it decided to lift it for him for a brief second and and that's it. But um, I'm doing pretty well on the monitor front. Um, I've got Hammersleyensis over here. I recently got good shots of Pilbraensis. Um, I don't know if you caught that shot at all. Um, I released that a couple of weeks back. Um, Potentially. I, I failed big time with that years ago. Um, I actually found it and then um, got one of the hottest individuals that I'd ever seen and cooked the shot, basically just got a uh, an initial shot of it as I um, pulled my hand away and then it disappeared. So it took me another three years to get back in get onto that species again and get good shots of it. I'm a, I'm a gecko nut, so I was just looking at your picture before of the um, <clears throat> the one you took recently or you put uh, up recently, sorry, of the um, Lone, Odura. Yeah. 
the limestone range velvet gecko. Yeah, yeah. Murray I didn't Moo. know that thing existed before I saw that photo. I was like, oh, okay, there's a new one for me. Oh, really? I just grabbed nah. pretty recently, I think. Um, 20. Oh, I think. Oh, it says there, 2014. 14, yeah, 2014. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, that is uh, a sick gecko to see in the wild. They're huge. Um, yeah. Biggest Odura I've, I've found. Really? Um, yeah, it was like probably 15 centimeters total length. Wow. Yeah, it was a beast. Big, big male um, sitting there in ambush. And, uh, yeah, just he was, uh, he was a chiller. Probably also one of the you, – you'll notice that my best photos are usually with individuals that I get that are, are really cooperative and, and, and really relaxed. And yep. this guy was one of those. Um, he, just, he just sat perfectly. He was one of the best Odura I've ever photographed. And as you can see, like that's what – made me be able to do a long exposure yeah yeah that's a cracker shot that one yeah yeah i was flicking through your instagram earlier i've flicked through it numerous times but um yeah some of the pictures of the geckos you've got are unreal well if you if you want to um level out the playing field a bit and see some of my my bad earlier images you just get onto Flickr because i kind of use Flickr as an online catalog of of pretty much everything I've photographed, whereas yep. I only share my better shots on Instagram and Facebook. But um, yeah, if you want to see some shockers, if you want to see some shockers, get on, get on um, Flickr and go to the older stuff. Yeah, I've, I've got an account in there. I don't. I, can't, I haven't been on Flickr for years though. So yeah, yeah, it's sort of. Look. Yeah, it's one of those things. I, I don't put a lot of time and energy into it. I just basically dump my photos online there, and that way, um, people I've been contacted a few times just by academics and people doing um looking for images for books and stuff so it's worth having but um yeah i've just got other things that um take my time and flick is not one of them <laughs> <laughs> yeah no you're definitely nailing it on the instagram so i wouldn't worry too much about Flickr. <laughs> <laughs> no well i don't know Instagram's a bit of a funny one um I think I came a bit late and then I also feel sorry for people that got on there and, and made accounts kind of recently and, and in the last couple of years because you could get a lot more followers back back in the day. Um, yep. and, and I started the Facebook page the same or maybe I started Instagram maybe six months after the Facebook page and I've got like over 30,000 on the Facebook and then Instagram is only sort of about 11, no, 10, 10 or 11, something like that. You're but at 11. Yeah, yeah, it's hard It's hard to get followers on Instagram now. Yeah, yeah. I noticed, yeah. I they, don't know what they've, they've done something, I think, with the algorithms and stuff like that. Yep, yep, yeah. it's it's quite hard. I think, I think just because as it got so popular, the more people that got on there, um, the more content that's on there and then I guess – the harder it is to get a lot of followers. Whereas I know people mm. that started Instagrams, you know, a couple of years before me and uh, they got to like 20 and 30,000 pretty quickly. Yeah. I remember talking to Tyson about it um, from, from Doc Merton. He's got his own Instagram account that I th don't quote me, but I think it's between 30 to 40,000 followers or something on there at the moment. And he was saying that recently there's been something that's changed in there that, you know, his following just hasn't grown as, as quickly as it should be now. It's at that slow. same sort of rate. 
yeah. anyway i do feel like we're giving instagram more credit than it's worth like yeah. <laughs> honestly it's not about likes and follows and stuff and no. like i i know people might look at what i do in, in my presence online and be like oh he just cares about a good photo or he just cares about likes and stuff like that but it's more it's more to get my stuff out there because this day and age if you're a photographer um mag like it's just evolved the only way you can publish your stuff really is is get it out yourself that's right there's not even even photography magazines you know aren't really worth much anymore Oh, even even the competitions and stuff they yeah. they run like I, you know, I don't really have much time for competitions. Also, I don't need like I don't really need the validation of like, hey, here's a gold star. Um, so I don't enter a lot of competitions. I I more just keep to, keep doing my own thing and and put my stuff out there on my socials and and the idea about it is I'll I'll, I'll touch on that a little bit why I've sort of done what I've done with social media. It's because in the first year or year and a half, I was just going about hurt photography really because I was obsessed with it and it was it was like self-satisfying. It was it was really me doing what I loved. And um, after about a year and a half, I kind of just thought something was missing a little bit with it. And I was just like, I used to get a lot of enjoyment out of and fulfillment, I should say, out of, doing the educational stuff when I was a snake catcher yep. and actually educating people about the animals, teaching them something new, showing them an animal they don't didn't even know existed. And that to me was more fulfilling. So when I went into the photography side of it, the reason why I started doing social media with my photography side of it was to bring back some of that fulfillment of teaching people about the animals. And you'll see on a lot of people's posts, like on Instagram, they'll just be like the name. You might even get a scientific name. You might even just get someone just doing a half-assed line uh, on their photo and stuff. And then you'll look at my ones and I've actually written two to three paragraphs about yeah. about the animal or about the trying to tell a bit of a story or you know, let people know how hard sometimes it is to find these animals and what I go through and, and just basically trying to tell a story with each one. But that takes a lot of time to write those. But it gives you more fulfillment when you're actually putting your photo out there with some information behind it because kind of what's the point? Yeah, you know, exactly. Like It's just a picture at the end of the day if you don't. And people are getting so desensitized to, to good photos now. Yeah. That, that like if you're not teaching them something with with the photo, um, I don't know, kind of what's the point? You know what I mean? Like I, yeah. I w- yeah, if there was no social media, I would still go out and do what I did and I would have the photos in my house and I would have them as a record because I love those memories of that animal. Yeah. And each I can look at every single photo and just it brings back a flood of memories for me. But the educational side is is the only reason why you should really do f- social media. And the other thing is that, yeah, it, it does help me with my fundraising and stuff like that. So yeah, yeah, which which is a, again another good cause and my way of sort of giving back to a few organisations that I think are worthwhile. Do you want to throw out any information about some of the fundraising stuff that you do? Uh, yeah, well, mostly my fundraising effort, and it's a big bloody effort i um 
sell sell basically a, a calendar every year and I'm on my fifth one um, and it's 12 of my best shots. I, I do a, a bit of a competition on my socials so people can vote for their, their favourite ones and then that makes up the calendar and uh, 25% of the proceeds go to, um, I split it now between the Royal Flying Doctors and the Global Snake Bite Initiative. Um, they're sort of, I was bitten by a mulga snake in 2017, 1,000Ks um, from uh, the nearest anti-venom and, and the Royal Flying Doctors came and um, took care of me and got me back to, to where the anti-venom was and I was just laying there on the flight thinking how lucky are we in Australia that if we're if our life is in danger, we can call on a service that will fly a private jet out to us with a highly trained doctor pilots that are you know highly trained as well as in the medical side of it as well and they'll come and save your ass and and take you back to to help um and when you delve into the snake bite crisis around the world and see how bad other countries have got it uh, which is why i really recommend watching that minutes to die documentary yeah that's um, excellent that one yeah and that that was made by um, you know, one of the, a couple of the board members and, and a few other guys of, of GSI. And um, they really did a good job or probably the best job at, at lobbying um, the World Health Organization for, uh, at, you know, realizing that, uh, getting them to realize that um, it's a neglected tropical disease. You know, 125,000 people plus dying a year, you know, 400,000 maimed and disabled every year. And when you see what the venom, what the cytotoxins in the venom do um, to those people in like rural Africa and India and South America and stuff, um, if they don't die, they're just having horrendous, um, you know, they lose all their wealth or not that they had any wealth, but they lose their primary caregiver or provider. Um, they have to sell off everything they have for anti-venom because of the cost of it you know what i mean it's it's they've got it really bad and here here i am getting flown in a in a private jet a thousand k's away because i got bitten by a snake um and you know the comparison is just yeah crazy so for me helping out both those organizations are um are pretty close to my heart and um important to me there's plenty of other good ones but that's what i I like to sort of support and educate people about. So if you're listening, buy the calendar. Yeah, yeah. if you're listening, buy the, the calendar and and watch the Minutes to Die documentary. Just yeah. go, go on YouTube and watch Minutes to Die. I can't say that I've actually seen that, so that's going to give me something to watch later on. Yeah, what? Well, yeah, give it a watch, mate. It's um, it's eye opening. It's um, it's got a bit of an impact. Yeah, good. I like those ones that kind of hit you hit you like that you know it's kind of good to open up your eyes every now and then and and realize that there's other sides in this in this earth and people can be suffering all around the world i have to um i have to kind of ask though it, it, it i mean it's okay if you don't want to but are you able to elaborate a little bit more on what happened when you did get bitten by the mulga uh yeah no it's fine um i basically got my mate to film me in the hospital and me getting packaged on the RFDS flight and I did have a, a bit of a spiel in the hospital um, ab about it because I thought 
a lot of people, it bruises their ego a little bit when they get bitten. If they're snake, if they're you know a good snake handler, or if they're known as a snake catcher or something, and they get bitten, bruises their ego and they try to hide it. Um, whereas I ever thought if the time came where I got bitten, um, and if it was possible, and I had someone with me or something, I'd try and just film it and put it out as a bit of a story so that other people can learn from it um, just to sort of learn what you go through when you get bitten because if people have a bit of an understanding of what it's actually like, they might not be so fearful when the time comes. They might remember something you said, um, oh, I've got to stay calm, you know, oh, I've got to immobilise, I've got to, you know, got to call call for help, you know, Um all these steps that you got to go through. So I did a bit of a video straight after, um, well, in the hospital, and I put it out within a month of of actually getting bitten. Um, it's it's an old post now from twenty seventeen or twenty eighteen. Can't remember. I think it's twenty seventeen. Um, but what happened is I was on a amazing herp trip. This was, I think, one of your questions earlier was going to be which is the best herp trip I've I've been on. It's hard to answer best, but this is one of the most memorable because I was going out for temporalis and um, I pitched the idea to Nat Geo, sorry, Ausgeo, and they said, oh, cool, if you find it, take photos and then come back, send us all your photos of the trip and if we like them, we'll let you write an article, um, which was cool. And that all ended up happening. And then on the way back, we stopped off at around Laverton and uh, there's a good patch of habitat out there that I frequent where the sand plain meets kind of the arid stony habitat and you get a crossover of species and and just so happened at the time that one of those sides of the road was burnt out and the other side of the road was still, you know, intact habitat. So the night that we got there just happened to be the perfect weather window late in October where um, the temperatures just jumped up a good probably eight or 10 degrees and, you know, summer was basically here and it just spurred everything into action. And there was a a period there of four nights where it was just ridiculous. There were animals all over the road and we got there on the first night. We sort of timed it for that. We were basically looking at the weather going, it's jumping up 10 degrees. This is going to be amazing. Um, The first time in the season sort of thing. And it was, and, and because of that, burnt out habitat we just had animals crossing the road um all night you you couldn't we would find a you know a mulga snake or a skink and then you'd pull over to have a look at it and then if you saw in your headlights 20 meters ahead something else and then it was just like that for about 10 k's uh, we wow. must we must have seen like at least 50 elder eye um wow it was it was amazing. It was amazing, and I hadn't seen them before. So by the end of it, we were sick of them and kicking them off the road. <laughs> but what happened was, I uh, saw basically baby mulga snake on the road. I uh, went over to remove it from the road because a road train was coming. Um, basically, just chucked it off the road, and it decided to do a U bolt and come back on the road. So I've gone over to get it again. Bit of a lazy sort of pin with my hand and a bit of a hurried sort of job and it swung around and bit me and it was only 30 centimetres long. So you've got a snake on a 36-degree night that's um, more than at operating temperature to to be as fast 
as possible and then also it's only got 15 centimetres to double back on itself to bite me. Just gave me a quick defensive bite on the finger. Um, basically, I just let it go. Road train came past and I just thought, oh, man, as soon as, as soon as you get bitten, you're like, oh, I've ruined the herp night. That's, that was my first thought, like I've ruined this amazing herp night that we were going to have reptiles everywhere. And um, looked down at my finger and... I was like, okay, well, mulgas have painful venom. So if it actually envenomed me, I'm going to feel this any minute now. So I just sort of waited a good 30 seconds to a minute and then the, the pain started settling into that finger and I was like, okay, I've been envenomed. Let's not stuff around. You know, mulgas aren't as toxic as a lot of our other elapids and knowing that they deliver more, you know, uh, a bigger venom yield is what sort of bumps up their them to being highly venomous and and more dangerous. Whereas if you've got a baby snake, it gets one fang in, it's a quick defensive bite. Looking back on it, I probably would have made the decision to to maybe just bandage it up and probably keep going about the night. But being that we were so far away and it was the first time I'd been bitten by anything, you know, in the dangerously venomous category, um, we basically got my ass off the hospital and and in the end after all of that you know three hours waiting for the rfds they didn't have anti-venom in kalgoorlie which is uh the next nearest town so they had to fly me all the way back to perth and yeah i ended up not needing anti-venom in the end so pain went up my finger radiated up my arm uh almost got to the shoulder and then yeah, they, they took the bandage off. They had anti-venom there and they were just waiting to see if I was going to get systematic. And um, the venom actually didn't really get past the small amount that it injected didn't didn't go into my system. So didn't end up needing it in the end and got discharged at 9 o'clock the next morning and went and got some sleep because it was a bit of an ordeal and not much sleep happened. And then um, that night, me and... My mate, oh, so he had to drive the car a thousand k's back to Perth. Oof. So, so he was he was buggered as well. So we went to the pub that night and had a bit of a celebratory not dying beer. <laughs> <laughs> and then the next morning we drove the thousand k's back out there because we looked at the weather and it was the it last was the same. It was the same, and it was the last night before it cooled off again. So we drove back out there and had a similar night where it was just um, crazy. But I. That, that time I stayed away from any highly venomous <laughs> snakes and we found another mulga snake that was probably about six foot long and it was a mottled gold colour and, God, it was one of the sexiest mulgas I've ever seen in the wild and I didn't photograph it because I, like, <laughs> I was just like, what if what if something went wrong and I end up back at that hospital three nights later? Um, same thing. Same thing and I'm just like, I, I couldn't put anyone through that again like the the staff and the flight and i already felt guilty enough um so yeah that's sort of in detail what happened and my experience and why why i sort of support the rfds now because we're pretty lucky in australia definitely very definitely yeah what a story though yeah well yeah that's that's my story on on a bit of an unfortunate sort of incident like um you know it was 
I, it was always going to happen. I think if you if you play this game with venomous snakes and you're a handler and you love handling them and you're going to photograph them and and put yourself in that position, it's not a matter of if; it's just a matter of when and how bad. Yeah. And and yeah, you know, as a, as a fiery, I make sure that I be as safe as possible. Like that's in my training. Um, I make sure that I don't. If I'm out by myself, I'm not taking too many risks. You know, I've got a sat phone. I pay $15 a month for a sat phone so that I can call and actually be in contact with emergency services if I'm overbitten again and, yeah, just put measures in place where you um, try and stay alive. <laughs> yeah. That's certainly an insane story. Yeah. So... um. Jason and I have kind of been toying with the idea if we ever get out of this lockdown here in the, the New South Wales state, mm-hmm. potentially going up towards like Cape York and Iron Range and stuff. You didn't mention that you actually have been up there. And you didn't mention a few species that you found, but can you kind of just elaborate a little bit maybe on that trip and any other animals you found along the way? Yeah, so I was um, on a big trip. I went basically from the Sunshine Coast. I went into Uluru up to Darwin and then across the top I think it's oh, the Car- Carpenteria Highway. Yeah, it was about 16,500 Ks in five weeks. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it was my first solo herp trip on my own and I, I was just frothing. I was having a great time and, and obviously met a heap of cool people along the way like um, Chris Jolly and Brendan Shembury. Like Brendan put me up at his house in Mackay and we went herping together. And um, then when I was up in uh, Cairns, um, I invited Max and Lockie and, and our other mate Matt to basically fly up to Cairns and then I would take them up to Iron Range in my car and we'd basically just go and do kind of a week or five days up at Iron Range. Um, so we did that, all piled into the Amarok and and went up there and, and we, I'd say we cleaned up. Like we had a really good successful trip. We got our first, we got all of our first Taipan, which was cool. Um, still got footage of this thing. It's, it was only like four foot long and I've still got slow motion footage of like Max posing for a shot <laughs> and this Taipan just doubles back at his face in the blink of an eye and he just gives it a little flick of the wrist and it like just pulls up short of his face by about 10 centimetres and then it did the same to me but it went for my hand and same thing just... Um, you know, we're sitting there sort of just getting a, a quick selfie with this or not selfie, but, a, you know, we call them a wanker shot. Um, they're, <laughs> they're shots you don't post to social media or you shouldn't. And if you do, you're a wanker. Um, that's, that's, that's why they're called wanker shots. Um, so we're all getting wanker shots with this Taipan. And, um, yeah, it, it did that to me and it did that to Max, but it just gave us a bit of an appreciation of how, quick things can go to shit with those snakes if if they want to um yeah. and and just how quick their reaction time their head can be a meter away from you or two meters away from you and then it can be in front of your face in in seconds so they're they're not snakes to mess around with um in saying that we just you know we were over the moon there was no way we weren't getting you know photos of that snake and and also one each holding it by the tail <laughs> Although I actually don't know if um, Matt or Lockie actually 
tailed it for a wanker shot after that. I think they saw what it did to us yeah. and, and <laughs> they were like, nah, we'll just get camera shots of it. Yeah. Thought a little bit better of themselves maybe. Yeah. I, but, love, I love the heads on those coastal type ends. Oh, that they're so beautiful and it had a really white, like if you, if you do end up scrolling back through my older photos, you'll see photos of that trip and you'll be able to tell because I've got a, an album on Flickr called Iron, Iron Range or Cape York. Yeah, it's Cape York. And um, you'll see all my old crappy photos. But funnily enough, my Type N one isn't too bad. Yep. Yeah, it's pretty impressive when they got those nice crisp white heads within that yeah. kind of reddy orangey eye as well on it. It's just a beautiful contrast. Yeah, it was a, it was a nice individual. Um, it, it You can't really sort of tell how big it is in this shot it, it does look quite slender and and but it's it's hard to sort of tell the size of it but it was about four foot long um and that is just the worst to to handle like anything in that four foot mark if it's an eb or a taipan it's just not not fun yeah so what else did you find on that trip um so i got the taipan that was probably the biggest tick um yeah. i got to see my first prolongus um got green pythons um and i they're probably my best like i got a close-up of a of the green python just showing all of the heat pits and it's staring right right down the barrel of my macro lens there so i've got probably the best shot of that for, for me is um sorry the best shot from that trip is the is the virutus um and then yeah the other big tick was the mangrove monitor the, the indicus um yeah so they were the big ticks. Um, the rest was just some, you know, common frogs and like white lips and um, snake wise. We got like the black striped snake, Cryptophus nigrostriatus. And we got Boshmai on the way back down as well. Uh, sort of once we got out of that rainforest habit into, into the drier stuff. Um, got to see my first um scrubby as well which was cool it was about three meters long i've got a pretty terrible photo of it um <laughs> a lot of my photos are pretty terrible from back then so i do like you guys i need to get back up to iron range and um yeah re-photograph a lot of the species or refine them and photograph them yeah, we're uh kind of chomping at the bit i think yeah pretty good even just to have like a bit of a boys trip or whatever and have a bit of an adventure you know that's um yeah yeah i'm excited to do something like that it's it is really good um i i do like i do like going on hurt trips with mates and i i find two is the best um two is the best um i guess if you look at all of the aspects of a hurt trip if you have more than two, whatever animals you're photographing and then having to go through double the amount of, you know, photographs. And if, if you're in a situation where you don't want to affect the survivability of the animal, which is what most herpers should, should be like, then, you know, half the time you've got to be like, oh, I won't even bother photographing it or something like that. So if you've got too many people on a herp trip and you're really into your photography, I think the best thing is just going two people. Yeah. Um, myself, I'll just go on solo trips. It, it doesn't worry me. And I actually find that um, I probably do better photography-wise on solo trips um, 
because you know any animal that you do find you're only with it for you know sometimes 15 minutes sometimes half an hour but you don't have those extra guys to get through so that's yeah and they've got like you know and they're three guys at 15 minutes or three guys yeah. at half an hour yeah yeah exactly and so that that's a good thing just sort of sticking with just one ears or whatever um one other mate um it's better for for that but if you aren't really into your photography it's cool to go with more guys because everyone gets a kick out of seeing uh the animals and you all feed off each other and yeah, it's a great experience those earlier days where i sort of went with more of those guys like you know to vietnam we had like eight of us at one stage and the cool thing was is you you got eight of you so you got lots of pairs of eyes and we were just finding so much stuff um so that that's a plus as well yeah, pros and cons that's for yeah, sure pros and cons yeah yeah, yeah. so uh, like locally when i go out with my mates here there's quite a few of them and most of those guys are pretty heavily into their photography and do a pretty good mm -hmm. job of it so mm -hmm. i just tend to film little videos on my phone or whatever like that so then i can actually see the animal move and you know remember it from that i think that that's kind of another good aspect if you are have got a group of them it's always good to have definitely. a bit of footage definitely yeah yeah that that reminds me of the Colette's trip that we we did. Like we had Steve Tucky along, and at the time, he was he was into video, so he just bought his camcorder and, um, you know, was taking all the all the video footage because he he would rather do the at the time he would rather do the YouTube, yeah, videos and and then you know we had myself Dan and and Richie which were um, into the the hurt photography, but um, yeah, it's good to good to have someone along to, to sort of document it and video it and that's what i did for the boys over in vietnam and thailand where you know i stayed out of i photographed stuff but i i stayed out a, a lot of it and especially if an animal was getting a bit tired i'd just go no nah, don't don't bother and i just took a lot of video and at the end of the trip i put together like a, a trip video and yep. yeah it's a good memory for for the boys and you're, you're contributing to the trip sort of thing yeah yeah yeah, and yeah, no, I'm keen to get up there, and I'm just keen to get out and hurt more, really. So well, you guys are torturing yourselves at the moment because you're just talking to all the all, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> all the herpers, and then you know if, if you kind we'll of get out there and we'll find nothing. Well, <laughs> I mean, if you're stuck in lockdown, um, it's it. You guys must just be itching, yeah. Just, yeah, yeah. Especially with a day like we had over here, like it, this was the first day that it got to, what did it get to today? About 24? 26, 20, 25 where I am, 25, yeah. 26. Yeah, it was quite so, warm, warm this evening as well. I was like, oh, you know, things are starting to heat up a little bit. It would be nice to start going out soon. But, yeah, it's uh, a little bit dicey here with the COVID situation. We might just have to go start doing some essential bushwalking at night, Jason. <laughs> yeah, that's it come up with some good reasons. I mean, you're not going to be harming anyone out in the bush, are you? No. No. That's um, definitely not. But yeah, per definitely not. Perks of living in WA at the moment, we've got a third of Australia to to have access to and we're not, we're not in too many lockdowns. But having said that, uh, if you're like me and you like going interstate a lot, it, it sucks. Like I just had to can my trip to Queensland at the start of this month. Was, yep. Because I got family on the Sunshine Coast and mum's in Brisbane, so try and get back every six months to see them and uh yeah covid's been messing with pretty much every trip i'm trying to do at the moment so holy yeah. shit got that big state for the local ones though so yeah yeah i uh, look i'm i'm the last to complain so it's i yeah quite thankful i've got wa 
uh, to explore at the moment. Have you done any herping in Tassie or? Yeah, yeah, I did. Well, more so, more so went there for, I do canyoning um, yep. as a kind of an adventure sport and I do a lot of hiking and stuff. So I went over there for canyoning. I've gone over there twice for canyoning and once to do the overland track. And then another time back when I was in the army and we did the South Coast hike, which is one that you get flown in and you got to walk 80Ks out, uh, which was really cool. Um, but species I've seen over there, mostly, you know, the, the limited actual time I've been able to devote to herping, I've just gone for like the copperhead and yep. got to see plenty of tigers um, on that um, overland track, especially once you sort of get towards the end of it. Um and yeah, I think we on, we got a bit of sun one day, and we saw like six six tigers, and all all pretty decent size. Like they get a bit bigger down there than over here in WA. They seem to like I've caught a lot of tigers over here in WA. Um, helped my mate Damien Latouf do his PhD, do his catching for his PhD over here, and um, we yeah we would catch a lot of tiger snakes, and they're only around the you know between two and three foot a big one might be just you know maybe 1.2 1.3 but tassie we're getting like six footers yeah wow yeah solid yep well down correct me if i'm wrong but chapel island's off tasmania isn't it it is and they're the biggest so yeah yeah that's on the to-do list yeah they're, they're the ones that are renowned for eating all the mutton birds or something isn't it yeah yep yeah so I think they only feed three or four months of the year, um, if if that, and then uh, then they've got to basically just live on what they've consumed. So pretty pretty epic. I'd love to go over there and tell that yeah. tell that story at some stage. So, jeez, that's on That'd the to-do cool. list. So while we're talking about telling stories or you know educating the public, we have to kind of bring up the the short film that you made. Uh, earlier on the deadly deadly Australian snakes and their behavior what kind yep. of brought that film about um that was sort of I don't know you know when someone has got something to say so they write a book that was yep my little project of, of what I had to say and what I had to um just the points that I wanted to get out to the public that firstly reframing the way people think about snakes you know like with with ex, with human expansion um, you know, I'm, we're destroying their habitat uh, and I think at least if you go and move into a new housing estate or if a snake com- comes into your yard, when I would snake catch, I'd just be astounded by the amount of people that were just like, it shouldn't be here and they were, yeah. uh, just getting so upset that um, this animal was looking for resources around on, on their property and I just wanted to really point out a few things in that documentary is first reframing the way people think about snakes as wildlife and as belonging in the ecosystem as a part of it, integral part of it. So, you know, just pointing out really simple things like reptiles and snakes can't, they don't understand our concepts of property ownership. Mm. We you know, moved into to their habitat. We've destroyed it almost for for housing and, and agriculture and, and now we get surprised that they're in our yards looking for food and water and shelter. It's it's crazy. So get, getting across a few of those points and then 
probably the biggest one was to get people to understand snake behavior because I deal so much in, well, in the snake catching side of things, but also in my interactions in the wild with these animals, I understand their motivations, why they do what they do, why they behave the way they do. And I just always think to myself when I'm out there and I observe snakes doing this behavior, it's mostly bluff and it's mostly, it's just a defense mechanism to get you on the back foot so that they have it, can see an opportunity to get away. And people put so many of their human emotions onto snakes. They're like, it looks evil, it looks nasty, it's it's being nasty, you know, and they put all these sort of, you know, things onto the animals. I, I call them anthropomorphic projections, which are like human projections onto the animal. The snake is not, you know, it's got a supraocular scale shaped the way it's shaped so that it can shield its eye from debris as it moves through um, habitat and also shield it from the sun. And if it sloped down, you'll get people going, oh, it looks nasty, it looks mean. And it's because that people started drawing things as evil with down, downward-shaped brows and they've got this, like, concept of what looks evil. And then just because the snake, you know, has this supraocular scale that, sh- you know, looks like it's frowning, people put their projections onto that animal and, and they're just not even real. Yeah. So I didn't go too much into that side of it, but I just wanted to get people to understand their behavior, realize that, you know, dry bites are a thing. A lot of people have no idea that, you know, a snake will opt to dry bite a lot of the time. And whether it's consciously doing it or whether it's just a result of a quick defensive bite and it's not actually latching on and pumping venom from the venom glands, people don't even realize that, you know, you look at brown snakes and the statistics of their envenomation rate and it's like 20 to 40%. Yeah. And people don't understand any of these things. They just think that a snake actually will seek you out to bite you and, it, and yeah, they, it's, they're just really misunderstood. So that was what I had to say and, um, I got really good feedback on it. I was happy with sort of the the feedback that I've got from it. Um, you know, what did, what did you guys think? Yeah, I really liked it. I remember watching it when it first kind of came out oh, a little while ago. I can't even remember when it first came out. But when you sent me the link again the other day, I was like, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely give it another rewatch. But I thought yeah, the I production- watched it yet. Yeah, I thought the production quality of it is really good and like the message in it is just perfect. That's, you know, it's everything yeah. that anybody that loves reptiles and knows reptiles wants to be able to tell to anybody. And yeah. I can definitely say that I've shared it around a few times to a few people that have probably needed a little bit of education on the matter. Yeah, you know, cool. So it's, it's always good to have something like that to be able to go, maybe you just need to sit down for half an hour and have a bit of a bit yeah. of a watch of this. You know? Yep. Yeah, well, that's it. It's just, and and there was a lack of it. Uh, that was the other thing too. There was a lack of it out there. Um, you get, for whatever reason, you get a lot of smarter guys that I, that I am that that know more about reptiles, that are more knowledgeable on on the topic, and yet they they're not people persons. You know, they're not people yeah. people. So, um, or they, for whatever reason, they got four kids and they they're too busy or whatever. They don't have the time or the energy or the the want to to put that content out. I'm in a position where I can do it. I'm passionate about it. 
Um, I know enough now to, to be able to put that information out there and it is doing some good, I hope. Um, and I think that's way more valuable. You know, even if my following doesn't grow anywhere near as some of these guys that just want to act like absolute gooses on the internet for attention and likes and stuff, they don't realise that they're not creating anything of value. So yeah. if you go and get a 100,000 followers or whatever figure you want to put on it on Facebook, they see that as validation and they see that as like they've made it. But it, fame is fickle. It's not it's not a useful thing to anyone really. It boosts mm-hmm. your it might boost your ego, you might get a TV deal, what whatever. But at the end of the day, when you die, what's your legacy? And, yeah, exactly. and that's the question I'm, you know, I'm 36 now and I'm sort of that's on my mind. I'm like, what's the stuff that I want to leave behind? And if I've got a tenth of the following that anyone else has, at least that that following will be better educated. Their fear will be less. They'll know more about the species. Do you know what I mean? So this is, yeah, yeah. create content of value. Don't create content of the the quick fix or the- That just gets clicks. Yeah, yeah. click clickbaity stuff that, yep. that like you'll get more people liking and following you, but they're not going to remember you for anything um, important that you did or worthwhile that you did. Yeah. yeah, no, I really enjoyed the film. I think that it was like the messages are so clear. It's it's put together in such a perfect way that anybody could understand it. You know, it doesn't have to yeah. be over yep. the top and and scientific and all the rest of it. You know, but it was, and it was also in a good way that it doesn't make you come off like a a know it all or a dickhead or anything like that. You know, it just it's just like here's some facts. You know, maybe you just need to have a little bit of an education on the facts, you know, it's, it's right there. Yep. You know. Take, take it or leave it sort of thing. And exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I'm not getting too, you know, obviously I'm really passionate about this, but I try when I'm, I, I definitely, my style when I'm online and educating is you can't be this tree hugging hippie that, that yep. is, is so over the top that people just shut off to you. It's like, you know, when you're a meat eater and you've got a vegan, that's just being way over the top. You just shut off to them. So I realized yeah. early on that that is not the way to get a message across. It's put the information out there, let it do the good that it's going to do, and then the idiots that want that hate snakes and that, that want to get under your skin and, and do all that, just let just ignore them and just put your stuff out for the people that it's going to benefit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and that's what, that's what that is. It's part one. Um, I haven't really got online and talked about a part two, but there is going to be a part two. Um, and I don't think I'll. I don't think I'll give too much away on that. It's it's a concept at the moment. I know roughly what it's going to be, um, and I'm also I think going to step it up a little bit in the production side of things. Maybe hire an animist so I can animate some of the parts. Um, I'm looking probably for a videographer now that can start because I've got ridiculous amounts of actual video footage that I need to be able to turn into stuff um, to, to pieces, but it's just piling up on my hard drive. And yep. I, I can only, because I'm only a one-man band, I can only do so much. So um, I've just got so much there that can be um, released that I need some help. So I'm sort of in the market for a, you know, a uni student or a videographer that sort of wants to help out and um, 
yeah, that second piece, the production is going to be probably a little bit better, I think, and there's going to be some other parties involved and, and yeah, we'll see, see what I can sort of produce. Looking forward to it. Mm. Yeah, we'll, we'll make sure, not that we've got nearly a following like you do, yeah. but we'll make sure that we'll put the link up to that video on our on our uh, Facebook and Instagram pages and, and everything. But uh, just so anybody that doesn't know Ross and wants to have a watch of it, then, you know, it's a good way to kind of kind of see what we're talking about here. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, yeah, it all helps. So, and it's good to have a bit of a community of people that are just, you know, on the same page. And if you guys value my stuff and want to support it then great yeah exactly definitely more than happy to well jace do you have anything else that you want to touch on no that was good yeah it's a very solid episode here um ross this has been absolutely phenomenal as well thank you so much for coming on i know we kind of just let you run with that completely but you're a brilliant speaker and you know it was um an absolute pleasure to have you on here Thanks, fellas, and yeah, likewise, uh, you're running a great podcast, and and yeah, you're doing a great job. So, keep up the formula, and uh, keep up the good work. Cheers. Oh, thank you, mate. We'll uh, wrap her up, eh, Luke? Yeah, sounds good to me. All right, guys. So we'd like to say a massive thank you to Eric and Owen and the rest of the NPR crew for having us. If you'd like to contact them, it's best to find them at MoreliaPythonRadio.com and email them at info at MoreliaPythonRadio.com. As far as contacting us on our social media platforms, you can email us at australianherptoculture at gmail.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram as well. To see more of what Jason is doing, make sure to follow him on Facebook and Instagram at The Gecko Effect. For myself, you can find me on YouTube, Facebook, Instagram, Patreon, and Teespring under Beach of Scaly Beasts. We hope to have you back next week for another episode of the Australian Herptoculture Podcast. Good night, guys. Good night.